Good morning. Um, today's reading is taken from Mark 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Excellent. Well, you're very welcome, as I say, if this is your first time here at Foundation. Um, what we've been doing is going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been learning together what it, what it really means to, to follow Jesus. Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? And that's, that's really what the, the Gospels in general uh, lay out for us. And we've been taking our time going through over, over a period of months. Um, thank you very much. That's great. She always knows how much milk to put in my tea. Thank you. That's why we love each other. Thank you. It's my wife, by the way, just if, if you don't know. Um, and anyway, we've been looking through um, the, the, the mission of Jesus, and we've been seeing from the very early stages that Jesus' mission is to show and tell about the kingdom of God. He's been preaching about it and, 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 and saying, repent and believe. You know, turn away from whatever version of life you've been doing, uh, because it's not working for you. It will not work for you. Come, come to God. Come, come to the kingdom of God. And, and, and finally, Jesus we haven't crossed this bit yet, uh, but he opens the way to the kingdom through the cross, through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And we've been seeing over the last few weeks that he's sort of drawing things, I suppose, to a climax. And Jesus has uh, sort of officially entered the temple in Jerusalem, and, uh, and he has sort of declared a kind of judgment over it. You know, it's not fit for purpose. Um, it, you know, we, we've seen it's, it's, it's all show and no fruit. There's a lot of religion happening but it's not, it's not changing hearts, it's not changing minds, it's not making people worship God, enjoy him more. And so, and so um, the, the temple, according to Jesus, is, is past its sell-by date. And, and as Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem, his sort of official entry on, on the back of a donkey, uh, quite a few people welcomed him and said, Yay, Jesus, King, Messiah. But there were still quite a few who remained silent, who, who stood to, to lose out. And we've been meeting those people who stood to lose out over the last few weeks, and they are the religious leaders. Um, and so, so last, last week out, we saw uh, the first sort of lineup of opposition against Jesus, uh, which was the chief priests, it was the scholars, you know, the scribes, the, the, the PhDs. Uh, they were the ones who came out and said to Jesus in the temple courts, just who do you think you are? Who do you think you are getting on like this, turning over tables? Where, where does your authority come from? And we saw that last week, and if you missed that, you can, you can go back and listen uh, on our, our podcast. Um, but today, then, we're, we're crossing phase two, right? There's multiple waves of opposition to Jesus and his mission, and today it's phase two. Uh, and so what we'll be seeing um, is, is really clustering our thoughts <clears throat> around these three headings. How to, number one, how to live well in the kingdom of Caesar. Jesus teaches us that. Number two, he, he teaches us how to live well in the kingdom of God. And number three, how to avoid harmful polarization. How to live well in the kingdom of Caesar. First of all, uh, you can see in verse 13, they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. They, by the way, is the, the religious leaders, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that Jesus has already had a ding-dong with. 
And so they send another bunch to try, it says, and trap him in his talk. They're using a different tactic. Okay, the first, um, the first tactic didn't work. That was the overt, who do you think you are, the challenge to his face. And so now they're resorting to cunning. Right? They're resorting to trickery, um, some sly moves. The Pharisees, just in case you're not familiar with, with who these people are, um, they were a strict sect within Judaism, super conservative, and, and they set for themselves and, and for everybody who followed religion, I suppose, impossibly high standards of law-keeping, right, to the nth degree. So, so unless you were a professional Pharisee, it was basically impossible to reach the standards that they thought everybody should have. That was them. They hated Rome because they're all for Israel, all for Jerusalem. And they hated the Herod dynasty, the Her- you know, King Herod and, and all of his family. Because Herod, as far as they saw him, was a puppet king. He was just like on the string pulled by Rome. And so therefore, it's kind of a surprise pairing when you think about it, because it's the Pharisees and they paired up with the Herodians. Um, we don't know too much about the Herodians and who they were. Um, but the name suggests that they were pro-Herod supporters. You know, they were for the monarchy. Um, they were for King Herod and his, and his offspring. Um, despite the fact that he was basically a political appointment from Rome, they were still for him, because obviously when things go well for Herod, things go well for their supporters, etc. These two radically different groups, ordinarily enemies, and yet they have teamed up. It's kind of like something in WWF wrestling or WWE. You know, they're teaming up to take down Jesus, because both of these, even though they didn't agree on anything, they had more to lose if Jesus was real and he was the king. And so they team up, they bring their best and brightest minds to the, the, the plate, and they use a bunch of cunning and games to try and undermine Jesus, to try and get him to say something that they could hang him with. And they began with flattery, as often these games do. Uh, look down at verse 14. They, they came to him and said, Teacher, it's hard to not read this in a sort of uh, a cynical way, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You know, just laying it on thick, the flattery. What a great teacher you are. You're you're true. You're not, you're, you're, you're impartial. You always say what is right. Which, by the way, is correct. They've got it right, but they didn't mean it. They were insincere with all this. They tried to butter him up so that he would walk into the trap that they were setting for him. That's how these tricks work, right? They tried to manipulate what they thought were his weaknesses. And here comes the trap. After all that. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Take your pick. Yes or no? This was the trap that they presented to him. And it's a very well thought through argument. It's very clever. They sought to skewer Jesus because he had a choice to say, no, the law is not, sorry, it's not lawful. Jews should not pay them and therefore get in trouble with the Roman authorities. Or if he said, yes, it is lawful. Jews should pay the taxes to Rome. Then he would lose the support of all the people and, and they would uh, abandon him instantly. So according to this trap that they'd set, Jesus either had to declare himself as anti-Roman pro-Jew or he had to declare himself as pro-Roman anti-Jew. 
I mean, you can just imagine in the pub when, when the Pharisees and the Her actually no, the, the Pharisees would never have gone to the pub, of course. You know, they, they're too too good for that. Um, when they sat in Starbucks or whatever, and they were con concocting this uh, argument, they would have thought, "Oh, we've got him, lads. We've nailed him." You know, it doesn't matter which way he goes, we've nailed him. But Jesus' response is equally brilliant and devastating. Let's look in verse 15. He, he, knew, he knew what was going on. He knew their hypocrisy. And he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Right? He calls it out. He names what it is. Why are you testing me? No answer. Bring me a denarius, he said, and let me look at it. What is a denarius? A denarius is a Roman coin. Um, it tells us equivalent to about a day's wage if you were a, a working person. Um, but interestingly, the denarius was the currency of the Roman tax. So when you pay your taxes to Rome, you pay them in denarii, plural. Um, and every man between the age of 14 and 60, I think it was, had to pay the Roman tax, whether you like it or not. Uh, in fact, they've dug a few of these coins up and um, you know, they, they, they found, particularly in the, in, in, from the realm of the, the, the time of Jesus, um, Tiberius was the, was the emperor, Emperor Tiberius, and they found quite a few of these coins that all say this on, on one side. There's a picture of Tiberius's face, and then it says in Latin, Tiberius, Caesar, Divi, Augusti, Filius, Augustus. Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back, was a picture of a woman or a, 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 another um, character, probably Tiberius's mother called Livia, and it said Pontifex Maximus, high priest. So this coin had son of God, high priest. That's what it said. But do you see what Jesus didn't say? Jesus didn't take the denarius and throw it on the ground and stamp on it with his foot how dare he say he is God? Who does this man think he is? I'm the son of God. No, he doesn't do any of that. He holds up this coin, which, by the way, came from the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're the ones who had it on their possession. And he said, who is this? Whose face is this? And they reply, Caesar. And then finally, Jesus said to them in verse 17, holding this coin in front of their eyes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They thought they had him done up. They thought they had him backed into a corner, and yet they marveled. They had to marvel at him, whether they liked it or not. Tremendous. Jesus teaches us here how to live well in the kingdom of Caesar. Render, which means give back to Caesar, what is due to him. In other words, he said to his Jewish compatriots, pay your taxes. Give what is required to be given to Caesar. In other words, recognize that he is in charge. Submit to his government. Honor where honor is due. Respect where respect is due. St. Paul wrote very similarly in Romans 13, he says, let every person, he's addressing the church in Rome, would you believe? The Christians in Rome. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, 
honor to whom honor is owed. St. Peter writes, sorry, St. Peter writes similarly. Be subject uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Fear God, he says, love the fellowship, honor the emperor. Do that. So here we have Jesus, St. Paul, and St. Peter all saying, pay your taxes, honor the government. And of course, this presents us today with a, a huge challenge or a, a dilemma, does it not? Because what happens if you or I or anybody else disagrees with those who are in leadership over us, our government, whoever they may be? I think it's safe to say um, in our society very, very generally, there are those who generally agree with their governments and accept what they say, whether they like it or not, but they, they accept it. And there are those who generally are in opposition and rejection of their government and do not accept much of what is said. And this is especially true, I think, if you feel or identify as, as someone who is uh, one of the occupied peoples, you know, one of the original peoples of the land, so to speak, and these foreign invaders have come and, and, and put their laws in place without asking your permission. The, 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 this foreign government is therefore unwelcome, and they've imposed their structures upon you. And this, let's face it, gets to the heart of many of our issues here in, in Ireland, doesn't it? In Northern Ireland as well. Um, there are a proportion of people who generally accept government and leadership, and there are a proportion of people who generally reject it. And largely, you know, again, broad brushstrokes here. It depends on whether you consider yourself to be British or Irish, unionist or nationalist, a Brexiteer or a Europhile, a socialist or a capitalist, etc. These different dividing lines will distinguish whether we're generally in acceptance or generally in rejection of whatever government it happens to be. Interestingly, though, we can't forget this, the context that Jesus was speaking into uh, in Judea and Jerusalem and the whole Palestinian um, territory was at that time an occupied territory. It was occupied by the Romans. The Romans swept in, they imposed their rule. And so Jesus was not speaking in the context of a settled majority where we all believe the same things, of course. No, no, no. He was speaking in the context to occupied peoples who wanted to know as an occupied person, you know, occupied people group, how do we pay our taxes? Should we pay our taxes? And Jesus says, live well in the kingdom of Caesar. All of us, of course, are going to react differently to this text. And it's important that we understand that. Don't, don't think that everybody's going to react the same way you're reacting to the text, whether favorably or unfavorably. Everybody has a different perspective on here. But according to Jesus, live well in the kingdom of Caesar. Doesn't mean you agree with everything government says and does. Doesn't mean you support every decision that they make. But it does mean that we're called, according to Jesus, to honor our leaders, to pray for our leaders, right? to avoid jumping on the bandwagon of cynicism, which is so widespread at the moment. According to Scripture, they are put there by God, and, and, and we're to give what is due to them. It's only when the state demands what does not belong to them, like our worship and our minds and our consciences, that's when we should abstain. 
But until then, says Jesus, live well in the kingdom of Caesar. Give to Caesar what is his. Uh, but the second thing Jesus points us to, <clears throat> thankfully, that's not it. The second thing he points us to in this text is in how to live well in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the dominant thing that we've been looking at through the whole of our studies through the book of Mark, is the kingdom of God. What does it look like? How do we get in? Uh, what, what does it feel like when, when we're in it? How to live well in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, let's not forget the flip side here. He said, render or give to Caesar the things that are his, but to God the things that are God's. And don't forget, it's all about giving back. It's about returning. It's giving due. And this, this central and, and sort of radical idea within the kingdom of God is that what you have, what you possess, be they resources or skills or achievements or whatever they are, ultimately you haven't owned them or earned them yourself. Yes, you've worked hard. Yes, that's part of the picture, but it's all within the, the system of the kingdom of God. Just as within the kingdom of Caesar, you have an ability to earn money, uh, you, you've been working within an economic or commercial system, so too in the kingdom of God. Let me explain a bit more about what I'm talking about. Um, in the kingdom of God, everything is God's. In the realm of his Rule, everything is his. God, as it tells us from, from Genesis 1 uh, right through, he is the creator and he is the sustainer of all that is. All that is seen and all that is unseen. It says the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. The stars in the sky belong to him. You and I belong to him. The Apostle Paul writes, what do you have that you did not first receive? This, this is a really difficult idea uh, for those of us um, who are from a Western individualistic framework. That's, that, that's, the, that's where we live. That's what we are. Um, in the West, cultural West, and this individualistic idea. Because it's, it, we, we think that our resources and our achievements, whether that's our money or our academic excellence or our career or whatever it is, we think we see those things, we see our bank balance or the certificates on our wall or whatever we've done that we're proud of, and we say, I've earned that. You know, I, I, I've worked hard for that. I, I've put in blood, sweat, and tears. I've made it. No one gave that to me. I went out and got it myself. I've achieved this for myself. That's what we say, naturally. That's, that's what we think. And that's true, but it's not completely true. Um, just, just think with me for a second here. Think about your, your own mind. Let's say your intelligence, your intellect. Where does that come from? Well, think about the opportunities that you've had in your life to get to where you are now. Where do those things come from? Well, think about your own natural ability, whether it's physical ability or intellectual ability or whatever it is. Where did that come from? Or even your position in society. society. Where did that come from? I put it to you this morning that we owe more to the forces outside of our control than we would care to admit. For example, none of us in here chose where we were going to be born, when we were going to be born, and to whom we were going to be born. That had nothing to do with you. You were just born. It just happened to you. Yes, others were involved in that, okay? But you weren't. 
Your mind, your brain, your intellectual ability, that's not something you necessarily worked to receive. It's not something you decided to have. It was something that was given to you. You were born with it. And even if we examine this, let's say, from a, from a totally non-religious or a secular perspective, we have to admit that a large amount of our current situation, your specific individual situation, has happened to you outside of your own control. Not because you chose it, not because you worked hard for it, it's happened to you. Some may say that's chance, others may say that is fate. Whether it's the openings that you've had, the opportunities that have just come along for you, it's all happened outside you. You are a product of a, a system that fosters achievement. And yes, you've worked hard. Yes, you've trained yourself to attain a little more. But let's face it. These are, on the grand scheme of things, these are often small adjustments to what you already possessed. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time. The Bible says, all of this, all of you and all of your benefits and all of your abilities and all the things that have gone well for you, all of this, is a gift of God. It's from God. He literally breathes life into your lungs, and you are alive. The scripture says that all good things come from our Father above. So, how do we live well in the kingdom of God knowing that? Well, it's not just a case of paying taxes to Caesar and then just keeping the rest. It's about recognizing these two kingdoms. And it's about understanding that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of both kingdoms. Give to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's not primarily about money. In fact, the Bible is clear. You and I and every other human being here were created to know and enjoy and celebrate God. That's what it's all about. To give God honor, to live for God. Uh, that's what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, to repent and believe the gospel, to welcome his Messiah, King Jesus, to give ourselves to his kingly rule, to submit to his lordship. It's not about money. It's, it's so much more. It's so much bigger. It is our whole lives surrendered to the king in obedience and honor, enjoying it, because it gives you life when you do that. And of course, none of this should come as a surprise particularly for those who are familiar with these themes of the kingdom of God. When you realize that you have been created by God, for God, you will find your fit. You will discover your purpose. You will say to yourself, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm living for. He is the one I'm giving myself to. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're a Presbyterian, you'll know what that means. If you're not, forget it. Um, but it's, it's a way of teaching, you know, the, the, the basics of the Christian faith uh, through a series of questions and answers. And the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this. What is the chief end of man? What's the answer? Hands up, any Presbyterians? Go on then. And to All right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you and I have been created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We, 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 in other words, we're to build his fame. 
We're, we're, we're to enjoy his renown. We're to build his kingdom of, the kingdom of God on earth. And we use our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's your chief end. That's your purpose in life. And so when you see it from this perspective, we are freed to live well in the kingdom of God once you understand what we're here to do. Because if we start thinking that this world is it and that I've earned everything myself, which, let's face it, is the majority position we hold in the West. If we think that this is it and I've earned it myself, then we just won't be truly generous. We can't be. We, 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 we won't be open-handed. Because we will always think that giving away feels like a loss, that we must somehow recuperate, work harder to replenish. But... If we understand this kingdom of God perspective that we're thinking about this morning, if we, if we have faith and trust in God's ability to give, that our entire lives are to be given to him, to enjoy him forever, then we'll say to ourselves, he gave me everything I have. I will give everything I have back to him, and he will replenish me a thousand times over. That's what you can say in the kingdom of God. You can't outgive God. How might this perspective then change our view of money? Surely it will make us more generous, not less generous. Give back to God what is God's. How will it affect us as a church? Well, surely our resources, our gifting, our service. We'll be more generous as the kingdom of God comes and as we understand it. As he moves us forward on mission. how to live well in the kingdom of God. Thirdly and finally then, I want to point out or talk about how to avoid this harmful polarization. Because when you look at the argument that the Pharisees and the Herodians gave, they wanted Jesus to go down one track or another, didn't they? Rome or Jerusalem? Pro-tax or anti-tax? How do we avoid harmful polarization? Because it's not a question of either or. It's not a question of God's kingdom or Caesar. It's, it's both and. Right? It's two kingdoms that we are... Sim- if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a simultaneous citizen in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar, otherwise the state or whatever you want to call it. Right? The kingdom of the world. Two kingdoms. But it's important for us to understand they are not equal. Okay, it's not one sphere here and one sphere here and they're both the same size, like, you know, two wheels on a car. They are not equal. One envelops the other. Jesus is Lord over all. His kingdom shall never end. The same cannot be said for Caesar or whoever happens to be in charge at any given moment in world history. The great statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote this, there is not one part of the universe over which Christ cannot cry, mine. See, it's the trick of the Pharisees to try and polarize Jesus. Which is it? Who are you serving? God or Caesar? Heaven or the world? But he shows us, Jesus shows us here, that we can have allegiance to both. 
Rome or Jerusalem, politics or religion, progressive or conservative, socialist or capitalist, unionist or nationalist. These are the dividing lines that go straight through the heart of our own society, just as they did in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus resists this harmful polarization, and because he resists it, so too must we. Now, I'm not saying for one moment here, please don't take me wrong, I'm not saying that one side is right, the other side is wrong. Neither am I saying that as believers in Jesus, we should adopt a vague middle ground where we are completely unconcerned about these contentious issues. I'm not saying that either. I'm not saying that we should refuse to speak about the difficult issues that divide us as a society. Quite the opposite. We should speak about them. We must. But we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. See, the enemies of the church, the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of Jesus' mission sought to polarize him, to push him down one track or another, to get him to hang himself with the rope they were giving him. Are you anti-Rome or anti-Jerusalem? And the enemies of the church still do this today with a series of half-truths, manipulations, flattery, exaggeration, caricatures, and character assassinations. So when it comes down to it, are you, uh, are you, are you for the world or are you for heaven? And we say yes, both. Or to use the words of the Apostle Peter, fear God, honor the emperor. Avoid harmful polarizations. And when you do, and when you, when you see that you are a citizen of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar, <clears throat> there's, there's a number of practical implications or outworkings that that sets up. Let me just give you three as we come to a close. First practical outworking of knowing that you live in, in both means that you are free to enter the civic realm without compromise. Okay? So that means that Christians can choose if they wish to engage in the political sphere without compromise. They can become, if they wish, politicians or activists or lobbyists or, or whatever it is. They are free to join parties and groups, etc. But as they do that... They, they, they bring the values of the kingdom of God, which is overall, into the kingdom of Caesar as the representatives of God. The Bible calls that salt and light. They get to be salt and light. But if that's you and that, that is something you feel called to and, and drawn towards, we do that not seeing the political process as ultimate, as sovereign, because it's not. It's not the answer to all of our problems. It's helpful, it's needful. Absolutely. But it's not the kingdom of God. Only the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness is the answer to all of our problems and problems you didn't even know you had. But as such, we are free to enter the civic realm without compromise. Second practical outworking, it boosts your missional power. It boosts your missional power, whether as an individual or us as a church. Because when we, when we see that the, the kingdom of Caesar is, is subservient to the kingdom of God, that means that we hold the things of the kingdom of Caesar loosely. Okay? That means that it's easier for us as, as, as believers in Jesus and as a church to fit in, quote, where we don't belong. Because we see the kingdom of this world as a subset of the kingdom of God, we are less tempted, therefore, to prioritize things that divide us. We, we will see them as less defining. 
So, example. <clears throat> Say, for example, we were going to plant a church, you know, start a new church in a Catholic town or, let's say, a nationalist community of our city or something like that. That means that we will freely adjust our language and be very considerate of, of people's views and assumptions. And we will freely ensure that we are making nothing a stumbling block for people hearing and seeing the gospel of Jesus. That's what we can do when we see that the kingdom of God is over the kingdom of Caesar. See, if you get it wrong, you get it the other way around, you go in, or I go in, perhaps with the best intentions, whatever, and, and we're trying to convert people to a certain politics or a certain way of living or a certain way of speaking or, or whatever. But that's upside down. That's, that's backward thinking. Instead, when we realize uh, that we have to avoid harmful polarizations, we are free to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to those who need to hear it. It's not that our convictions about politics or ethics or economics are unimportant. They're just not primary. They're just not what we lead on. Right? We lead on the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It boosts our missional power, thirdly and finally. We understand this. We avoid harmful polarizations. We will start to display the glorious kingdom of God in all of its beauty. When we see the primacy and the, the supremacy of the kingdom of God, when we see Jesus taking his place, when we see Jesus receiving all the honor, and when we place all of our important yet secondary convictions under the supremacy of Jesus, then we will see what is truly beautiful. We will see this stunning heavenly mixture, this, this dazzling picture of true diversity and yet unity. That's what we'll see. We'll see unionists and nationalists worshipping Jesus together. <laughs> we'll see socialists and capitalists giving to the ministry of the same church. We'll see Irish and British and every nation under the world eating bread and drinking wine together, celebrating their unity in Jesus. And just to be clear, when we go out and uh, uh, we minister in Jesus' name, I'm not saying that we have to turn Irish people to British people or British people to Irish people. I'm not saying we have to swap our Rangers shirts for Celtic shirts or anything like that. Whatever. Stay Irish. Stay British. Love your country. Love your people. Amen. But love Jesus more. Welcome his reign above all others. Because he is greater. He stands high and above all the rest. And all these things that divide us are really just belonging to the kingdom of Caesar. They might be important, but they're not Jesus. He stands above them all, and that is how we display the most glorious kingdom. Give to God the things that are God. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let's pray.